This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and bon voyage, Babette. Many listeners will be grieving a future they thought we might achieve after the climate election. Many people feel the government will now turbocharge coal and gas projects despite their disastrous impact on the global climate. Certainly the courts are cracking down on activists who oppose coal. Last week a court fined a man $9,000 for safely blockading coal trains near Bowen in Queensland. The magistrate said, quote, Scientific data does not in any way require this court to accept that climate change would amount to an extraordinary emergency. The man, Greg Rolls, said that we should take the $4 billion in coal and gas subsidies and use them to create jobs in central Queensland. He called on, quote, all people who care and all people of faith to make this our life's priority. Otherwise, the generation coming will pay for it. We'll hear tonight a lot about jobs. We'll hear from Lily Barto from Frontline Action on Coal, who says that we need to understand how Queensland miners, uh, mine workers feel and we should get real about the transition of jobs away from coal and gas. $4 billion, as uh, Greg Rolls said, that investment would create a lot of jobs. Then we'll hear from Extinction Rebellion. Um, Reed Pierce will speak to us about clogging up the traffic, mobilising people who feel that there's nothing we can do, and then building something better. I, I spoke to him um, at the resistance office in Sydney, but also at a Extinction Rebellion rally on Mother's Day. Please stand up, make some noise, and make this the climate election. <laughs> Post-election depression, hey. <laughs> so this was apparently the climate election and the climate loss. Just weeks after, as we talked about, the like quite conservative governments in the UK and mm-hmm. elsewhere actually declared a climate emergency following these mass civil disobedience, we re-elected a party of climate deniers and vandals. Why did we do that? So I think one of the first things that we need to realise is that evidently for a lot of people... It wasn't a climate election. It was a good old-fashioned jobs and growth election. Mm -hmm. And so I think my first lesson from this election is that you can never underestimate how well Facebook's algorithms can conceal public opinion from you. (laughs) (laughs) Just because all of my friends gave a shit. (laughs) The second thing that I think that we can take away from these results is that our regions are really hurting because... Happy, contented people don't vote for scare campaigns. The Murdoch media has invested a lot of money and effort into the jobs versus environment mm-hmm. false dichotomy. And we have to ask ourselves why the progressive jobs and environment counter-narrative just doesn't resonate. Why? 
What are we doing wrong? I'm here today on behalf of a loosely affiliated, decentralised, anti-hierarchical national network of bush barrels that's known as Frontline Action on Coal, or FLAC. And for the last few years, our main focus has been the fight to stop Adani, the Carmichael project in central Queensland. So as the name suggests, FLAC tends to go to the front lines of the fight to save the climate. We believe in and we're committed to the power of non-violent direct action. Direct action is not a request for representation. It is a direct intervention. When we occupy a politician's office to pressure them to vote a certain way, at the end of the day, you are asking someone else to do something on your behalf. When you chain yourself to a tree so that no one can cut that tree down, there's no middleman. You're just in the way. Basically, I've been out to communities that are, you know, really want the coal jobs and like hippies like us have to pretend to be Canadian backpackers to not get into bar fights. <laughs> um, and what that's shown me more than anything is that a lot of people don't have the luxury to worry about 2030. They are worried about today. It is no good, like you are not going to get anywhere talking to them about 2030 or 2050. They need to provide for their kids today. They need to put dinner on the table today. Everyone knew that that was where it was going to play out. These communities have been lied to by everybody from like every direction. I think we have to ask ourselves like, what makes your voice different to every other voice making them a promise you can't keep? Saying the phrase just transitions, at the end of the day, it doesn't make sustainable jobs fall out of the sky. We've got to do something. We have to build what we need ourselves because the government has made it quite clear that they're not going to help. <laughs> they're only going to get in the way. So we need to challenge and we need to dismantle, but we also need to build. When you go out to these regional communities and you're like, there are so many jobs in solar or whatever, and they're like, where are they? Get the fuck back to the city. Like, I don't want to listen to you tell... Like, you're just another person promising me a job that will never come. Like, they're, they're as angry at... Like, some days, they are as angry at Adani <laughs> for not having started yet yeah. as they are at Greenies for telling them that, like, mm. you know, like... The point that I was trying to make is that they have been so neglected for so long that isn't cutting through like the messaging that the movement has been using has evidently not been working in those communities extinction extinction thanks people how many jobs would it take to uh, radically transform the Australian economy to 100% renewable in the next 10 years and installing solar panels throughout the outback we're talking a lot more. Yeah. Uh, how about, uh, I've heard some people saying uh, convert Australia to 200% renewable, meaning they're actually exporting energy. Exporting. Yeah. How many jobs would that create? We're not just talking about the installation of solar panels. We're talking about the manufacturing of solar panels here. Why don't we get manufacturing back? We've outsourced manufacturing to, to China and all these other places where we're completely reliant on uh, other countries for, for jobs. Why, are we, why, are we, why do we allow that to happen? Why can't we be empowering workers and labor unions to stand up and say it's no longer a choice between jobs and the environment. It is jobs and the environment. They're one and the same. So when you talk about a green economy, you're talking about a thriving economy. You're talking about one that's people have jobs, people have security for the future for their children, and not just for their children, but for seven generations forward, taking advice from our indigenous brothers and sisters who happen to know a thing or two because they have been here for 65,000 years in, in this continent. So I think it's time we listen to them. and.
In my mind, this is a movement of the 99% is standing up for environmental justice, which does include social and economic justice issues. And I, I really think there is no way to, adjust, uh, to address a just transition without addressing gross wealth inequality. There is no way to address renewable energy without addressing workers' rights and unions. There is no way to discuss carbon emissions without addressing animal rights and ending animal agriculture. We are in a time of history where all these issues intersect, and that actually gives us strength, and that's what gives me hope. Because for too long, we on the left, or we as a movement, have been splintered over semantic issues, or we've been focused on single issues. But it may be some people are focused too much on the environment, or unions, or anti-war, or LGBTI, or anti-racism, or what have you. But I think that's what they wanted. They wanted to keep us divided, because we weren't united. So the right loves that when we splinter and stay divided. But we should all come together at this time, and that's what really inspires me at this stage, is that we could stand together, we can stand together over oppression, and we can lead a 21st century revolution unlike any other. And, you know, truly a people united will never be defeated, and this is the stage where we can all come together and actually stand up for what's right. So for me, the fight for climate justice is that fight. It connects all our separate fights for a better, more just, and compassionate world. And Extinction Rebellion is leading this fight globally now, and we are aiming to become the straw that broke the camel's back on climate inaction. Interestingly, all Extinction Rebellion members, when we close off messages, we say a simple message like, with love and rage. So, so what does this really mean? In my mind, we, we have love for all our brothers and sisters. We have love for our animal friends. We have love for our planet. So what's really motivating us is, is compassion and love for, for humanity and for the planet itself. But we're also, we're, we're damn angry. We're, we're upset. We're upset that it's come to this point that we're actually talking about our own extinction as a species. So we're, we are filled with rage, but we want to channel that rage in the right way. We want to actually make meaningful impact. So any, I'll, I'll just close with saying we are growing the movement. We've grown uh, exponentially just in the past few months. Our web website is www.ausrebellion.earth. So check us out, sign up, and you're all invited to join the rebellion. that for two decades has done nothing on climate change. Oh no! Can I grab you a rope? No, there's a rock on me. I, I can't move. A rock? What the hell? Well, it's a weight of despair and an apathetic government, powerful lobby groups and an indifferent mainstream media. Dear God, what on earth can I do to help? Go now and pledge money for the 3CR Radiothon. Great. What do I do? Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Anything else? Yeah. Remember in your donation to mention the Beyond Zero Emissions radio program. I'll go right away. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Beyond Zero Emissions is a research and education think tank. Our focus is on solutions. We know that a transition of enormous scale and speed is needed. But we're creating the blueprints. However, we have no transition authority in Australia and no plan at all to phase out coal mining and gas drilling. The question, what lessons can we learn from other countries making the same transition, got our next guest thinking. 
I'm at the University of Technology in Sydney to meet Dr Chris Briggs. Just three days before the climate election, he co-authored an article in The Conversation with Elsa Dominish and Francisca May. It was called How to Transition from Coal, Four Lessons for Australia from the World. I was very interested to get this international perspective because, as he said in his article, Australia's climate and energy policy is a fiasco. So welcome, Chris, to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. I'm very curious to know how it didn't turn out to be a climate election. It was more like jobs and growth. And I'd like to know your take on that. On the one hand, you've got the very real fear and anxiety around their, their situation and jobs. And on the other hand, there was really no, there's really no transition plan. The Labor Party promised a just transition authority and to work it out after the election. But there was no tangible plan for, for these people in these communities. And so I think as one Queensland, the, the one remaining Queensland Labor MP said, people interpreted that the Labor Party doesn't, doesn't care about them and their, their region. Yes, and what about the unions? Because I think the mining part of the CFMEU said um, the road to Canberra is through central Queensland, and uh, they they perhaps weren't going to be directing votes to Labor because of that weakness. Well, I think the coal mining unions have actually been leaders in this for, for space for quite some time. They sort of went on a journey from opposing renewable energy some time ago to supporting clean coal to now supporting a just transition in which they recognise there's a transition happening and and they'll support it so long as there's fair outcomes and and their members are looked after. Um, I think the Queen... I can't speak for the Queensland branch, but they seem to have campaigned for people to make pledges to Adani. And I think that's the sort of thing that happens in the absence of concrete plans to and, and real investment to transition these workers in these communities into alternative jobs. Yeah, well, so that's what we want to tell the listeners. What does it look like in other countries where they do make those plans? We've got 12 coal power stations that have just closed since 2013 and 75% apparently are sort of beyond their original design life. I don't know how long it will be before they close down, but... In other countries, they plan for this. Can you just give us some examples from Germany, for example, or Spain? Sure. I mean, to be fair, there's a mix. There's a mix of stories out there. There's yeah. the good cases of Germany and Spain. There are some who are trying to find their way through it, like Canada, and then there are others like us and, and probably South Africa who are really still struggling with a very polarised debate and how to how to move forward. But the ones that do a good job of it, Germany and Spain. Both of them have negotiated packages for the close down of their coal coal generation primarily in, in, in Germany, coal mining in Spain. And the sort of features you find in those packages are early, early payouts for uh, ageing workers, redundancy payments, retraining for workers into other jobs, part of a wider economic diversification plan that will create other new industries and jobs in these regions. The Spanish plan, I think, has the, the motto, no worker will be left behind. Mm. So they're, you know, they're, they're literally retraining and replacing um, every worker out of, out of those mines. So that's the type of package I think we need to see here. That's easier said than done. There's a bit of a journey that people have to go through for that. So I think in, in our article, the first thing you, you really need is some sort of social compact, some sort mm. of social agreement, which is based on a... Uh, agreement with all the different stakeholders involved, 
The German one involves 28 different groups who all have a stake in this or, or are experts. And it's based on broad principles that acknowledge that there is an energy transition happening and it's going to accelerate. And if we don't plan for it, the outcomes are going to be worse for the workers in these areas as well as dealing with the climate crisis. And on the other hand, recognising that there needs to be large-scale investment in retraining and economic development so that workers in these regions don't bear the costs of what are a social responsibility, a societal responsibility. Yeah, well, one of your lessons was that the cornerstone of all of this is a social compact. Just as I walked in, I'm at the Institute of Sustainable Futures in UTS in Sydney and I just noticed they were seeing a video, the staff are watching a video on the Uluru Statement and I that know that was made by arduous journeys all around the country interviewing and talking to all the elders of all the different regions so that they could come up with a declaration that suited nearly everybody and we don't seem to have had that process in Australia we've just, it's going to take us by surprise when coal is le- leaves us all behind, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, that's right. And, and if you look around the world, the, you can find, I guess, various types of just transition or energy transition task force and commissions that are doing public hearings all around their country, that are doing consultations, that have representation from all the different interests and that are trying to negotiate agreements. So these sort of processes can be found in South Africa, in Canada, in Scotland, in Germany. But as you say, we haven't got to that point yet because the debate is still so polarised. And I think it's something the Labor Party was intending to do after they got into power, but they didn't probably spell out in enough detail to these communities beforehand. These communities are not going to be sorted out on their own. There needs to be an active plan to, to manage it. The thing that, compa- that we, where we compare to South Africa as opposed to, the say, Europe is that we export coal and South Africa exports coal and that's a whole different ball game than coal-fired power. I don't worry too much about Australia's coal-fired power. It's the emissions we export that worries me and the climate action timeline that we've got of, you know, like another decade to try and get on top of that just frightens everybody if we're going to still be wandering in the wilderness not having a social compact. What can we do? And you're right, it's a much harder transition because power generation is in our own hands. It's our own sector and if we wanted to we could we could come up with some sort of plan that said by 2035 or 2040 or whatever date you, you, you choose that we would have an exit and we could organise that. The coal export is a whole lot more complex because it depends on the demand of other countries, um, particularly China, India and Japan. So it's a lot more complex, but we need to start having the conversation. We need to start planning within these communities because no one really knows how quick it will happen. But history says that it often surprises us. What, it, you know, what seems like it would go on forever, all of a sudden the bottom falls out of it. So it's a longer term, it's certainly a longer term conversation, it's a longer term process for the coal export areas, but it's something that we need to start doing now because it will happen and when it happens it'll happen quicker than people think. You praised Victoria as a global leader in adjusting to at least the closure of Hazelwood and I wonder, you said there are problems around planning early for closures as we need to do. Yeah, so Hazelwood was closed down with only five months' notice, which is not enough, of course, and and so it meant significant consequences and unemployment. But the Victorian government has then responded. Uh, It set up a Latrobe Valley Authority, and they they seem to be implementing and learning from uh, the German experience. 
So there's a, an authority with a lot of local representation. There's investment in economic diversification. They're encouraging new industries into the area, such as an electric vehicle manufacturing facility. They're investing in local solar and energy and creating jobs and transferring workers that way. They're investing in local community infrastructure. So they're, they're doing a lot, and it's the type of model that we, we certainly would like to see. The, the problem is that there, well, there, are requir- there are notice requirements on coal-fired power generators yeah. to exit, but I don't know if they're really going to be effective incentives. There, there's what economists call a barrier to exit. People know barriers to entry more, more commonly, but there's a barrier to exit because when a generator leaves, you get a spike in the wholesale price, as happened when Hazelwood occurred, and so the ones that hang on can make some money at the end. So they're holding on, oh. holding on, hoping that someone else exits first and that they can make a bit more money at the end. So without a genuine coordinated plan, we're probably likely to still have more Hazelwoods that shut abruptly. On the positive side, AGL in the Hunter Valley has given, I think, six or even seven years notice Mm. of the closure of Liddell and is working with a local transition group there to to look at alternatives and has got an EOI with the community to consider alternative uses for the site. But at the moment, it's really down to companies being good citizens rather than having a, an organised plan for closure, which is what we should have for, for certainly our own generation. Coal exports, as I say, is a, is a more complex story. So a demand, say, for the climate movement might be a transition authority at a federal level? Uh, well, yes, absolutely. And, and I think it has been. Like the Labor Party did listen to that and they did have that as part of their platform. Mm. But I think their, their program was probably a little formal or, you know, it, it was. It might have been good policy to have it set up an authority and then work out what to do afterwards, but it wasn't very good politics because it didn't yeah. give people a clear signal about yeah. what was coming next. But certainly I think the climate movement probably needs to reframe the way it talks about renewable energy and jobs. There's been a tendency to say there's not that many jobs in coal, it's 50,000. Renewables are going to create more jobs. Yeah. It'll take care of itself when in reality it's a lot more complex. They're not necessarily going to be jobs of the right type or the right time or the right skills for people that are inside these coal communities. Yes, so. we heard earlier this evening from the Frontline Action on Coal People and they said that city people just can't go up to Queensland and talk airily about a just transition and planting wind farms just where they've had a coal mine that just doesn't work that way. And your institute examined each of the coal regions in Australia and I wanted to know what stood out for you about the diversity of the other jobs that can replace. You know, give us some examples. I know Gloucester's one example where they fended off the coal and the gas, yep. and they're very proud of that, and they've got a diversification project going on there. But can you tell me some other regional examples where that is now happening? Sure. So, I mean, examples from around the world as well, I think, provide some lessons. Firstly, I guess one of the key, key elements of successful um, transition strategies is a lot of environmental site remediation of coal mines and power stations. They create a lot, they're quite labour intensive. You can um, phase them in at the time of the withdrawal of the plant so that it creates a lot of uh, semi and low skill jobs. And there's a big payoff for the local community that has, after all, had to live with the environmental impacts of coal mining and power stations. Uh, and the Ruhr in Germany is the, the standout for this where they've mm-hmm totally regenerated their rivers and, and, you know, they call themselves, I think, the greenest industrial area in the world now. Mm. So it creates a lot of jobs and the wider community gets a payoff in a, in, a, in a much better environment. Secondly, in terms of renewables, 
There will be some jobs out of large-scale solar and wind, but they're often not in the same areas as, as coal. So there might be some jobs, but then the jobs that happen tend to be construction jobs. They're, they're 12-month projects, and then there's quite a small number of jobs yeah. left over. So there's a bit of scepticism, not unfairly, a, around that. But where I think renewables can create jobs is in local solar and energy efficiency, retrofitting buildings oh, and the yeah. like, which we've barely gotten started on really in this country. They can create a stream of ongoing local jobs. Thirdly, it really depends on the local area and what their particular mix of industry and workers are. But the name that, that's used uh, around industrial strategies now is smart specialisation. So the idea that a coal mining truck driver is going to be an IT worker is you know, unlikely, but what they do is to try to look at adjacent industries or adjacent uh, skills and then find a way that they can build infrastructure and, and incentives and skills training to create a, a sideways movement. So it, it's a much more grounded and plausible strategy, and, and I guess the, the electric vehicle manufacturing facility is an example of that type of thing. The third type of example, I guess, is investing in infrastructure, which creates an immediate stream of jobs inside these areas, but it also helps upgrade the attractiveness of the area for other types of industries, and usually they focus on community infrastructure as well so that there's a payoff for for the local community. Um, Examples like schools and hospitals, what else? Yeah, or like just local sporting facilities or um, transport sometimes education facilities. It, it's, I mean, I think the key thing is to have local representation so that it reflects local community interests yeah. uh, and, and a worked-out plan, but it'll, it'll vary depending on, on the community. Okay, well, I think we're getting a bit closer to a more specific <coughs> thing, and I really think a lot of people listening to this would really welcome not having to just talk airily about, you know, wind farms taking... You see a lot of cartoon films, animated films, and you just see the coal mine replaced by wind farms. It's too simple. So just in summary, you drew four lessons from the um, work you did into what the rest of the world is doing about the transition. What would you just say, what are the headlines that listeners can take away? Yeah, so the headline was, I think we found four, four key elements. One was you need to build a social compact and agreement between all the different interests, and it needs to include local representatives as well as the, the national ones, and it needs to be an ongoing process. It's not something that happens overnight, it's a long-term process. So you need an agreement and you need a process that's going to include all those stakeholders because you're going to need to renegotiate and adjust things as, as you go along. So that's the first thing. Until you've got a social compact, it's very hard because you've got this polarised debate and conflict going on. And that includes a recognition not only by people in these areas that there's a transition happening, it means also climate advocates recognising that these people have a right to expect uh, some future investment in, in jobs and a, and a, and a future. Secondly, um, we need to see some early planning. It's not going to happen if you just wait till the last minute. So there needs to be some forward planning um, and of, of a variety of types to prepare both workers and industries in these areas for transition. Thirdly, there needs to be an economic diversification strategy or an economic development strategy. Renewables is part of the answer, but it's only one part of the answer and it needs to be part of a, a much bigger um, strategy that... that, that that looks at it as, as an entire economy and an entire community. And fourthly, there needs to be a significant investment of resources and, a, and really probably a dedicated fund or just transition authority set up to oversee and implement this transition strategy. 
Fantastic. So thank you very much. We've just been talking to Dr Chris Briggs, University of Technology in Sydney, and you're the Institute of Sustainable Future. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. You're tuned in to 3CR. We've been talking about Extinction Rebellion, Frontline Action on Coal, and the research into how to make a safe transition, a just transition of coal-affected workers, coal communities and coal mining workers. But what about growth? All of that is still predicated on a growth economy. But growth, as they say, is the ideology of the cancer cell. And we are already outgrowing all our planetary boundaries. So we're going to look at the growth economy in a specific example taking place in East Timor. I went up to Sydney University and I was very fascinated to meet two people involved in a new project which will make Timor plastic neutral. Now you might think, no, getting rid of plastic, what's that got to do with climate change? Well, the idea is to keep the plastic in a circular economy, to return it to oil and wax and other plastics and reduce the need for more drilling and more more oil drilling. And I really wondered why Australia didn't grab this technology, seeing as it's been pioneered in Sydney University. And I met all the people involved, and Al Jazeera was there filming this very important moment where they signed a memorandum of understanding. But anyway, here's my interview with Ambassador from East Timor, Abel Gutierrez, and Mr. Robin Chamberlain from the company Lysola. Welcome, listeners, to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. We're at Sydney University, where we've just seen the memorandum of understanding signed between uh, um, the government of East Timor and a company called Mura. It's, there's partners in this and it's a little bit more complicated than that, but it's a very good first step for East Timor to develop a new technology um, where plastic is recycled and it's turned into oil or later into more plastic and it's very valuable to them uh, once the project is started. And I'd like to start by welcoming Mr Robin Chamberlain who is the director of Mura Technology Limited and I'd like you to just tell me, Robin, what's involved in this memorandum of understanding that you've signed here today um, with the government of East Timor? What's involved in that? What, what are you giving them? What are they receiving? What's happening? So what we're looking to do is to utilise this technology that will convert uh, all waste plastics, with the exception of PVC is a bit of a problem, but otherwise it will tolerate any waste plastic, whether it's contaminated, if it's hospital plastic or food plastic, all of that what we're giving to East Timor is the, is the licence and the technology so that we can support them in actually converting their plastic and going plastic neutral. And what we're looking to do is to put that back into community aid whereby we're paying the communities for the waste plastic. And we believe that if we do that, people will not throw plastic away. So plastic then is a useful product that enhances life which I know is quite a, uh, quite a challenging statement, but our view is that we can't go without plastic in so many aspects of life. Right. But it's part of a circular economy, so you're not advocating drilling for more pl- oil. Uh, we absolutely are saying this will reduce the drilling for oil because the process that we're looking at reuses that plastic. And our view is that the most important thing is that plastic does not go back into the natural environment. We want to neutralise the negative effect of plastic. And we believe that no plastic should go out into the environment, whether it's the land 
whether it's the sea and if that plastic has value and is reprocessed and if that avoids the need to drill more fossil fuels then that is the best thing and the most responsible thing that society can do. Okay, well now we've got um, someone sitting here who, three CR listeners will perhaps remember him. It's so delightful that he's here. It's the ambassador for East Timor, Abel Gutierrez, and I'm so delighted he's here because he used to do a Radio 3CR yeah. show, and I'll ask him to talk about that later. But uh, um, Mr Gutierrez, can you tell us a little bit about, well, how it seems to you? What's the advantage to East Timor? Do you have a problem with plastic now? What happens to it? And what's going to be the advantage long-term of this new plant? Okay, first uh, first of all, uh, a big hello to all uh, 3CR listeners, friends, mm-hmm. uh, who have been um, over the years very supportive of uh, Timor-Leste liberation. And 3CR has been the anchor, you know, where many people... Um, um, uses a mode to communicate and educate other people to seek support for our freedom. And of course, uh, Timor Leste is free, and I'm sitting here <laughs> as ambassador representing the new nation. Um, and with, uh, with regard to this uh, venture, uh, Mura Technologies, and also backing by um, uh, highly knowledgeable University of Sydney, uh, it's the, the importance of this venture is to become uh, plastic neutral. Now, plastic neutral means that the, the seas, the rivers, the, the cities will be free of plastics. Yeah. So with that, we educate our people to understand and how to responsibly dispose the, uh, the plastics that we use because um, um, polluting the seas... Uh, then the, the microns from the plastic will be going into the fish, and then we eat the fish, and then the, the cycle goes on in a very negative sense. Uh, so, uh, but having this recycling, transforming the plastic waste into some valuable product that can be used afterwards. So you go into this three, you know, cycle yeah. um, uh, event, and um, and this is what um, Timor Leste is. Uh, uh, want to um, undertake this venture, and uh, from the government, and of course the Secretary of State who who is here and has signed at this MOU, and unfortunately he's not well. Uh, but the fact that he's not well and he made an effort yeah. to be here to sign that is already a mark of the importance yeah. of why this is so important to Timor Leste uh, to to run it and to become a showcase. Uh, for the environment and to secure the pristine environment that we want uh, for our country and that we will welcome visitors to come and see as well, tourists. Lots of tourists would love to see that. And look, people in Australia throw away plastic bottles. You see them on the beach, they're all out there and people don't see any value in saving plastic. It just goes in the rubbish. It's a huge problem. I'm sure people in Timor do the same, but like how are you going to make it worth their while to not throw that um, water bottle away or plastic cup away? Well, the thing is, if you do um, um, uh, plastic collection, okay, so instead of you, you go and uh, you know, pay companies to do it, you give an incentive to, um, to everybody yeah. Yeah, who has, the, if they use the bottle, 
and then clean it, bring it to a center yeah. where they get paid for it. Oh. So instead we set up an elaborate processing for the cleaning and collection, these people would collect them because that money that you would be investing in that will go directly to the people into the economy. Yeah. Because the, even the kids, the students, can each can pick up and they'll have plenty of pocket money mm-hmm. because they bring in to the center for the recycle and they get paid for it. Yeah. yeah. So that way you're also injecting the cash into the economy yeah. Yeah, for the people and for the kids to have pocket money. And, and so, um, but while we're doing that, also you are educating people uh, to understand that uh, the, the, dis- the disposable, when you're disposing of, yeah. of these plastics, it, it is, the importance is that because it's going to be transformed into something else. Yeah. yeah. Well, could Which I now switch, yeah. switch to uh, Robin? And you were talking big dollars with this. This is um, really worth Timor's while, and it's a not-for-profit at the moment, the idea. But there's good money in this, isn't there? You were showing me these little bottles of different types of oil, but you weren't talking uh, small money. No, absolutely. Uh, firstly, it's not for profit uh, forever and for good as far as TMLST are concerned. So uh, we're granting this license, we're giving technical support, we're using uh, the, 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 the plans uh, that we have for a plant on Teesside in the UK. Uh, and so this really is, is the best technology that's internationally recognised. But it's worth the, the product that we produce from one tonne of plastic we can produce products that are worth $800 per tonne. And that, is in a very, very uh, CO2-efficient way, means that we can go through the true circular economy, we can produce more plastics, we we avoid the fossil fuels. So they're high-value products. But also, this process is unique, which means that it's very, very stable. So unlike other conversion technologies, such as pyrolysis or syngas, this produces a very stable, very high-value plastic uh, that industry should want, and there should be incentives for industry to use recycled plastic. Because if that happened, again, people would not throw plastic away. And the problem is the misuse of plastic after it's been used. Whereas plastic, I don't believe any of us would want to go to hospital and not have plastic somewhere within that treatment. We just need to make sure it is not misused after use. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I believe that East Timor's electricity grid is supplied by diesel oil at the moment. Would this be a source for your electricity? Well, um, I mean, of course, that, that is the, the, the potential aspect of um, um, minimising... The, the diesel input, yeah. you know, and having this recyclable, you know, uh, refined oil is also a plus. Yeah. Uh, but but that is remain to you know to be to be worked out. Yeah. But um, um, but there are other aspects in terms of introducing the solar energy, you know, which is very important. I think University of Sydney and um, uh, Armstrong Energy, and, uh, Armstrong Energy is also developing this uh, battery. That con- can conserve energy, and uh, for longer period, you know, which is very good because that that is again um, another possibility where we can um, undertake, you know, to um, to have this um, renewable energy yeah. um, there. And you know, the government already undertook uh, studies about uh, wind, solar, hydro, 
as alternative energies what did you find what's the resource yeah. then yeah. yeah so so there is a spot where there's a lot of wind that 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 that, that we will enhance and to, to set up wind farm and also solar which is you know potentially will 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 set that up as, as well so that will in a sense if you take a a percentage of renewable energy to the country then it 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 minimizes the diesel cost yeah. which is also measure CO2 emission. Exactly. Yeah. So all around it would be very good, but I think, um, you know, Rob, uh, Robin can add some more technical mm. stuff on this one. Uh, yeah. Okay, Robin. Yeah. It, firstly, as far as our plant is concerned, then we're looking for solar and batteries, but very importantly for the University of Sydney, that we have backed their zinc bromine battery technology, and this is very close to commercial development. In fact, it's just going into commercial uh, development uh, and manufacture now. And that means that renewable energy can be uh, used all of the time and will be much more cost-effective uh, than uh, it is at the moment, much safer than lithium in terms of technology. So the university here have pioneered, and we've spent today actually looking at the battery technology plant as well. So we would desperately hope that, uh, that the petrochemical products that we produce actually do not go as diesel fuel, that they are predominantly used for, uh, for to make new plastics. They're in the circular economy. They're going back into waterproofing agents and other waxes. Uh, and our bias is certainly in that direction. We would like to see much more renewable energy deployment, and we would love to help Timor-Leste develop their wonderful potential for that um, with much more sunshine than we have in the UK. Well, um, Mr Gutierrez talked in his speech about the pristine oceans, and that's very important, isn't it, for your fish and for all of our life there. It's very, very important. It's such a beautiful country, and to have it you know, destroyed by this kind of pollution. Um, but, Robin, now I've lost my thread here, but I think you mentioned that you're not going to be recuperating plastic from the ocean, are you? But that is a next stage. Can you just excite the listeners a bit with how that would work later on? Once they've got those plants going, how would they recuperate plastic from the ocean? Okay, well, our first ambition is to, uh, is to take the plastic that's being used by the consumer and paying the communities for that plastic so it doesn't end up going down the rivers and into the seas in the first place. We then want to use that money to bring sanitation into schools and help them with their drinking water so they don't have to buy bottled water to have safe water. And we have to realise that that is a challenge for Timor-Leste at the moment. So we're looking to help with that. So uh, Timor-Leste produces about 70 tonnes of plastic a day. And thankfully, that ideally suits our reactor size to, to treat circa 20,000 tonnes of product per annum. And so it's an ideal match for us, which is wonderful. Uh, but what we would look to do is, first of all, to use the plastic that is being produced. We absolutely, though, and we have already uh, done tests on marine plastic, so plastic that is out of the ocean. Uh, of course, it's more expensive to collect, uh, and therefore it means that we can't send as money back to the communities. And, of course, if we don't put the money into the communities, then more plastic's going to end up in the ocean anyway. So the first thing we want to do is to stop the misuse of plastic by the consumer. That's stage one. Stage two, absolutely. Wouldn't it be wonderful to take plastic out of the oceans and to convert it back into high-value products that society needs without the need to drill more fossil fuel? That's our goal. That's our ambition. 
Okay. Uh, but that's the next stage. All right. Well, just to finish up, we've, I've heard from you that this is a world-leading technology and that you've received an award from uh, the sustainable packaging industry listeners who really can't stop using their packaging, but they've given uh, something called the Flex Pack challenge to you, um, won a prize. But the inventors of this come from Sydney University. Timor's going to be the first place where you try it out. How come Australia isn't building this sort of technology so that we, we also don't? We have a problem that we export a lot of our waste, I believe. Um, so, so firstly, uh, um, there is a, a, a test plant with the same size reactor at Summersby. So uh, we, we've taken the ambassador to see the process and watch plastic uh, turning into oil and coming out of a tap. And, and we've seen that and we smell the product there. And uh, so, so, so there is uh, a site here. We in the UK actually will be the first to build a 24-hour operating site. So Timor-Leste uh, will be following the blueprint of an environmentally standard uh, a process that f- that suits the UK market. So we we will run first. There is no way that we want Timor Leste to be guinea pigs in any way. We want to share our experiences and have best practice. That will be absolutely crucial. So I think that's the first. Uh, issue to do with that but otherwise the technology certainly is world leading uh, and uh, it has just won this this prize and because it's very different from other technologies and it uses water as the agent of change and that means there are no toxic emissions we're not using fire and burning things which most other processes do we're containing it and using water in a supercritical condition. And that's the magic. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. I'd just like to ask the ambassador just one few more words to the 3CR audience. Tell them just a few points about how you were on air with us all those years ago, before you were ambassador, before your country was free. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, um, um, uh, I hope that uh, 3CR listeners keep going supporting this station. Um, because it's uh, it's a voluntary station, and it's very important that uh, everybody continue to um, to to listen and contribute and make sure it stays on on, on air, and um, and therefore bring in critical news and you know, differences that me- major media don't give. So uh, well done, three CR. Well done, all the all the listeners, all your members of three CR and uh, devout three CR listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, well done for your, all your support for us in Timor-Leste and uh, you know, continue to, to do good work. And, uh, and hello to everybody who run the volunteer programs on, on 3CR. So thank you very much. That was the ambassador of East Timor, Dr. Ade Abel Gutierrez, and with us also is uh, Robin Chamberlain, director of Mura Technology. Thank you both for you both. Thank you. Okay. Now, I have Bruce Schillingworth here, who is a very important person in this movement. He introduced the uh, Extinction Rebellion uh, Mother's Day action today and he uh, asked us to think about Mother Earth on this Mother's Day. Bruce, can you go on from there? Yeah, I just, I just gave you know, all the mothers a bit of a happy Mother's Day <laughs> because it's Mother Day today, but I also said that we also got to think and respect our mother, Mother Earth. The Mother Earth that, 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 that keeps us and looks after us, and that cares for us. It, without Mother Mother Earth, we wouldn't survive. So, you know, we've got to look at the things that Mother Nature gives us, our natural resources that we cannot live without, the water, the plants, the food, our medicine, everything that it gives us. We've got to start looking after our natural environment. If we start seeing destruction, 
Well, look at our rivers. What's happening with our rivers? They're disappearing. All the land has been cleared. You know, the natural cycle has been upset because uh, 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 are, not, are not sustainable anymore because man have disrupted it. You know, it's a man-made disaster. So, with the clearing of the land, when we need to get back, we need to put our trees back into the ground. We need to put the vegetation back in the ground that'll create a natural rain, the water cycles that'll create rain, and rain that'll go into the rivers and fill our rivers again. That's what we want. Well, I met you first at a meeting about the Darling Barker, and I love those two words because the Darling River is also called the Barker River. Mm. And everyone was speaking to me around January, February about the fish dying in the Darling Barker River. And I want you to talk about that. That touched a chord with people because I think most people are city people now. They're not really in touch with the rivers or the big forests. They might see a bit of nature Mm. in their garden. But really, talk about it, how you experienced that. Well, well, over the Christmas break, we had uh, some huge, big fish kills, three fish kills in the Murray-Darling. So a lot of those fish, thousands and, and, and millions of fish that, that have died, um, especially our big 50-year-old cods, you know, those fish you cannot bring back. You know, you've got the freshwater mussel, you've got the, 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 uh, the aquatic life, you've got the ecosystem, you've got the birds, you've got the animals, all those things that have now died because of no water in the river. The water is uh, the blood of the earth. The water that gives us life. Mm-hmm. So why are these corporate greeds, corporate, you know, multinational companies that are taking our water and keeping it for themselves and now they're selling back to us? And these is causing the suffering of our communities. Mm-hmm. One of the great effects on, on our First Nation people is 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 the water because now the, the First Nation people are being introduced to bore water, which is not very healthy for us to drink. It's got a lots and lots of sodium, lots of salt. So, and a lot of our people don't uh, don't uh, gather along the rivers anymore. We can't go and see our sacred site. We don't go and see the water physically mm. the way it was. We can't pass down those knowledge and those stories mm. that our old people have passed down through our generation about mm. the rivers and about the fish and about those things that lives in the river. Mm. So, which was very important. Our sacred sites. You know, we've got a lot of sacred sites along the river, special places mm. that we can't sit down anymore and talk to our kids about because they can't see that water physically. Yeah. Are you feeling? I've just been up at Gloucester. Let's walk over here. Uh, we just get away from the uh, big speeches that are still going on. I was up at Gloucester, and there the Aboriginal people were put front and centre for this uh, two-day weekend about the Gloucester Valley, where they fought off the coal seam gas, and now they fought off with a landmark court case. The coal mine, Rocky Hill coal mine. It's a really important legal decision. But I love that, that they had Aboriginal people there who were rangers often working in the uh, forest or river regeneration. All that. But they were sort of the star people and everyone was wanting their knowledge. Are you finding there's a shift now that people are starting to look, look now, and say, oh, these people are really custodians. They really are custodians. Well, what do they know? You've been saying and I've been saying it for years and years, you know. And our old people have been saying that. But but no one were listening. But now they're in desperate need. Now they want that information. They want that knowledge that our people, our old people, and the people today has been, you know, all that, the knowledge that's been passed down for thousands and thousands of years because we have lived in this continent for over, you know, 40,000 years and we know the land. We know the rivers. We know the animals. We know all that sort of stuff. So now it's the time in history that we need to tell that. We need to be passing down as those important knowledge yeah. that we have for our own survival and for survival of, the, of this world and this but planet. The climate change is new. You know, I know traditional knowledge is about preserving what we've got, 
And that's what climate change is threatening. But climate change seems to be something new. It's above everybody's comprehension, really, all the systems that are breaking down. Yeah, but I think Aboriginal people have been... Look, the writings were on the wall and Aboriginal people have seen it coming. All right? Yeah. So they need to give it back. Those decisions need to be given back to the First Nation people. Mm. You know, because they are the custodians, like you said, and they have the knowledge of the land. And they know because they have existed for a long, long time. And that's why it's so important. Mm. That's why it's so important. And non-Indigenous people or Western society hasn't got that knowledge. Mm. You know? So now it's time, it's sharing of knowledge. Mm. It's about coming together mm. and trying to fix what, what, have done, what have gone wrong. Mm. You know? It's bringing together, it's a real reconciliation mm. between non-Indigenous people and Aboriginal mm. people. It's a time in history that Mother Nature is speaking to us. Yeah. So we need to unite as human beings mm. you know, and try to fix it. Mm. In practical terms, I've heard about uh, in Northern Territory, for example, Aboriginal people being put in charge of the seasonal burning, like in the winter, burning off those very high grasses that will will be catastrophic if they burn in the summer. Um, What other kind of practical actions do you think, climate actions to preserve, um, you know, to stop the emissions? Well, well, look, I was speaking at at the Sydney University the other night and I said, on the western side of the Great Divide... There's lots of clearing of the land, right? When the trees were there and the vegetation were there, it, it, it brought the rain, the natural cycle of the rain, yeah. that when it rains, the water then goes into our rivers, right? So what have happened when they knocked all those trees and cleared the vegetation? Mm. There's no more rain. And we will never see the rain until we go back and put those trees back in the ground, put the vegetation back, make the land as natural as it was before, before the farming. That's where we need to spend our billions and billions of dollars, you know. Yeah. We've got to look at the natural, natural cycle, you know. Mm. The only way that will bring water to our rivers is Mother Nature. Great. Thank you very much. That was Bruce Shillingsworth. Tell us who you are, Bruce. I remember that you're a TAFE teacher is one thing, but what, who are you as well? Well, my name's Bruce Shillingsworth. I'm an Aboriginal educator, so I've yeah. been working in schools for, for many of years. So um, I'm from a little town called Bawarana, out western New South Wales, and it's on the Darling River. Yep. It's where the Darling starts. And my mother is a budgety woman, and my father is a Murawari man. So I call myself a budgety Murawari man. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. This show was produced by me, Vivian Langford, in Sydney mostly, and I've transferred it to Melbourne where my colleague Andy has put it to air. And thank you also to Michaela who helped me today. This is an initiative of Beyond Zero Emissions to reach out to the public to tell you the solutions that are out there. And we would like you to support us, especially in our work. Radiothon is coming up and next week is our big Radiothon program. You can call us that day. So put it on your calendar now. Uh, June the 10th, Monday, 5 p.m. You can call us and tell us what you are doing, what climate action you are doing. Small donations are very welcome. So $10, get on air, tell us what you are doing. If you're in Extinction Rebellion or Wilderness Society or Conservation Foundation, any of the groups that are part of this massive tapestry of effort going to redress climate change. Call us and contribute to Radiothon. The telephone number, if you write it down now, is 94198377. So thank you tonight to our many contributors, Lily Bartow from Frontline Action on Coal, Reed Pierce from Extinction Rebellion, 
Chris Briggs from University of Technology in Sydney, Abel Gutierrez, who's the ambassador from East Timor to Australia, Mr. Uh, Robin Chamberlain from Lysella, and Bruce Shillingsworth, who is a First Nations spokesperson. So that's our show for tonight about the jobs and the transition from consuming so much carbon and drilling and mining it. We hope that it's given you some inspiration and that you put pressure on our politicians to get real about this transition as we heard from so many overseas examples other governments are actually doing. So good night and good luck. Help, help. Hello down there. Are you okay? No, I'm stuck. Stuck? Yeah, I'm stuck in a country that for two decades has done nothing on climate change. Oh no! Can I grab you a rope? No, there's a rock on me. I I can't move. A rock? What the hell? Well, it's a weight of despair and an apathetic government, powerful lobby groups and an indifferent mainstream media. Dear God, what on earth can I do to help? Go now and pledge money for the 3CR Radiothon. Great. What do I do? Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Anything else? Yeah. Remember in your donation to mention the Beyond Zero Emissions radio program. I'll go right away. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. They took all the trees and put them in a tree museum. And they charged all the people a dollar and a half just to see him. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? You pay paradise, you put up a parking lot. Hey, farmer, farmer, take away that DDT now. Leave me spots on my apples, leave me the birds and the bees, please. On it always seemed to go, that we don't know what we've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Farmer, farmer, put away that DDT now. Give me spots on my apples and leave me the birds and the bees. Please, don't it always seem to go that we don't know what we've got till it's gone. We pay paradise, we put up a parking lot. Ooh, pay paradise, we put up a parking lot. Ooh.